Part One, Chapters Seven to Ten of the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle by Hugh Lofting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: Shellfish Talk. The next morning, although I had gone to bed so late the night before, I was up frightfully early. The first sparrows were just beginning to chirp sleepily on the slates outside my attic window when I jumped out of bed and scrambled into my clothes. I could hardly wait to get back to the little house with the big garden, to see the doctor in his private zoo. For the first time in my life I forgot all about breakfast, and creeping down the stairs on tiptoe so as not to wake my mother and father, I opened the front door and popped out into the empty silent street. When I got to the doctor's gate I suddenly thought that perhaps it was too early to call on anyone and I began to wonder if the doctor would be up yet. I looked into the garden. No one seemed to be about, so I opened the gate quietly and went inside. As I turned to the left to go down a path between some hedges, I heard a voice quite close to me say, Good morning. How early you are. I turned around, and there sitting on the top of the privet hedge was the grey parrot Polynesia. Good morning. I said, I suppose I am rather early. Is the doctor still in bed? Oh, no, said Polynesia. He has been up an hour and a half. You'll find him in the house somewhere. The front door is open. Just push it and go in. He's sure to be in the kitchen cooking breakfast or working in his study. Walk right in. I'm waiting to see the sunrise. But upon my word, I believe it's forgotten to rise. It is an awful climate, this. Now, if we were in Africa, the world would be blazing with sunlight at this hour of the morning. Just see that mist rolling over those cabbages. It's enough to give you rheumatism to look at it. Beastly climate. Beastly. I really don't know why anything but frogs ever stay in England. Well, don't let me keep you. Run along and see the doctor. Thank you, I said. I'll go and look for him. When I opened the front door, I could smell bacon frying, so I made my way to the kitchen. There I discovered a large kettle boiling away over the fire, and some bacon and eggs in a dish upon the hearth. It seemed to me that the bacon was getting all dried up with the heat, so I pulled the dish a little further away from the fire and went on through the house looking for the doctor. I found him at last in the study. I did not know then that it was called the study. It was certainly a very interesting room, with telescopes and microscopes and all sorts of other strange things which I did not understand about, but wished I did. Hanging on the walls were pictures of animals and fishes and strange plants and collections of bird's eggs and seashells in glass cases. The doctor was standing at the main table in his dressing gown. At first I thought he was washing his face. He had a square glass box before him full of water. He was holding one ear under the water while he covered the other with his left hand. As I came, he stood up. Good morning, Stubbins, said he. Going to be a nice day, don't you think? I've just been listening to the whiff-waff, but he is very disappointing. Very. Why? I said. Didn't you find that he has any language at all? Oh, yes, said the doctor. He has a language. But it is such a poor language. Only a few words, like yes and no, hot and cold. That's all he can say. It's very disappointing. You see, he really belongs to two different families of fishes. I thought he was going to be tremendously helpful. Well, well. I suppose, said I, 
That means he hasn't very much sense. If his language is only two or three words. Yes, I suppose it does. Possibly it is the kind of life he leads. You see, they are very rare now, these whiff-waffs, very rare and very solitary. They swim around in the deepest parts of the ocean entirely by themselves, always alone. So I presume they really don't need to talk much. Perhaps some kind of a bigger shellfish would talk more. I said. After all, he is very small, isn't he? Yes, said the doctor. That's true. Oh, I have no doubt that there are shellfish who are good talkers, not the least doubt. But the big shellfish, the biggest of them, are so hard to catch. They are only to be found in the deep parts of the sea. And as they don't swim very much, but just crawl along the floor of the ocean most of the time, they are very seldom taken in nets. I do wish I could find some way of going down to the bottom of the sea. I could learn a lot if I could only do that. But we are forgetting all about breakfast. Have you had breakfast yet, Stubbins? I told the doctor that I had forgotten all about it, and he at once led the way into the kitchen. Yes, he said as he poured the hot water from the kettle into the teapot. If a man could only manage to get right down to the bottom of the sea and live there a while, he would discover some wonderful things, things that people have never dreamed of. But men do go down, don't they? I asked. Divers and people like that? Oh, yes, to be sure said the doctor. Divers go down. I've been down myself in a diving suit, for that matter. But my, they only go where the sea is shallow. Divers can't go down where it is really deep. What I would like to do is to go down to the great depths, where it is miles deep. Well, well, I dare say I shall manage it some day. Let me give you another cup of tea. Chapter 8. Are you a good noticer? Just at that moment, Polynesia came into the room and said something to the doctor in bird language. Of course, I did not understand what it was, but the doctor at once put down his knife and fork and left the room. You know, it is an awful shame, said the parrot as soon as the doctor had closed the door. Directly he comes back home, all the animals over the whole countryside get to hear of it, and every sick cat and mangy rabbit for miles around comes to see him and ask his advice. Now, there's a big fat hare outside the back door with a squawking baby. Can she see the doctor, please? Thinks it's going to have convulsions. Stupid little thing's been eating deadly nightshade again, I suppose. The animals are so inconsiderate at times, especially the mothers. They come round and call the doctor away from his meals and wake him out of his bed at all hours of the night. I don't know how he stands it. Really, I don't. Why, the poor man never gets any peace at all. I've told him time and again to have special hours for the animals to come. But he is so frightfully kind and considerate, he never refuses to see them if there is anything really wrong with them. He says the urgent cases must be seen at once. Why don't some of the animals go and see the other doctors? I asked. Ah, good gracious! exclaimed the parrot, tossing her head scornfully. Why, there aren't any other animal doctors, not real doctors. Oh, of course, there are those vet persons to be sure but bless you they're no good you see they can't understand the animal's language so how can you expect them to be of any use imagine yourself or your father going to see a doctor who could not understand a word you say or even tell you in your own language what you must do to get well Buff! those vets they're that stupid you've no idea put the doctor's bacon down by the fire will you to keep hot till he comes back 
Do you think I would ever be able to learn the language of the animals? I asked, laying the plate upon the hearth. Well, it all depends, said Polynesia. Are you clever at lessons? I don't know, I answered, feeling rather ashamed. You see, I've never been to school. My father is too poor to send me. Well, said the parrot, I don't suppose you really missed much, to judge from what I've seen of schoolboys. But listen, are you a good noticer? Do you notice things well? I mean, for instance, supposing you saw two cock starlings on an apple tree, and you only took one good look at them, would you be able to tell one from the other if you saw them again the next day? I don't know, I said. I've never tried. Well, that, said Polynesia, brushing some crumbs off the corner of the table with her left foot. That is what you call powers of observation. Noticing the small things about the birds and animals, the way they walk and move their heads and flip their wings, the way they sniff the air and twitch their whiskers and wiggle their tails. You have to notice all those little things if you want to learn animal language. For you see, lots of the animals hardly talk at all with their tongues. They use their breath or their tails or their feet instead. That is because many of them, in the olden days when lions and tigers were more plentiful, were afraid to make a noise, for fear the savage creatures heard them. Birds, of course, don't care, for they always had wings to fly away with. But that is the first thing to remember. Being a good noticer is terribly important in learning animal language. It sounds pretty hard, I said. You'll have to be very patient, said Polynesia. It takes a long time to say even a few words properly. But if you come here often, I'll give you a few lessons myself. And once you get started, you'll be surprised how fast you get on. It would indeed be a good thing if you could learn, because then you could do some of the work for the doctor. I mean, the easier work, like bandaging and giving pills. Yes, yes, that's a good idea of mine. T'would be a great thing if the poor man could get some help and some rest. It's a scandal the way he works. I see no reason why you shouldn't be able to help him a great deal. That is, if you are really interested in animals. Oh, I'd love that. I cried. Do you think the doctor would let me? Certainly, said Polynesia. As soon as you have learned something about doctoring, I'll speak of it to him myself. Shh, I hear him coming back. Quick, bring his bacon back to the table. Chapter 9. The Garden of Dreams When breakfast was over, the doctor took me out to show me the garden. Well, if the house had been interesting, the garden was a hundred times more so. Of all the gardens I have ever seen, that was the most delightful, the most fascinating. At first you did not realize how big it was. You never seemed to come to the end of it. When at last you were quite sure you had seen it all, you would peer over a hedge, or turn a corner, or look up some steps, and there was a whole new part you never expected to find. It had everything. Everything a garden can have, or ever has had. There were wide, wide lawns with carved stone seats, green with moss. Over the lawns hung weeping willows, and their feathery bough tips brushed the velvet grass when they swung with the wind. The old flagged paths had high clipped yew hedges either side of them, so that they looked like the narrow streets of some old town. And through the hedges doorways had been made, and over the doorways were shapes like vases and peacocks and half-moons, all trimmed out of the living trees. There was a lovely marble fish pond with golden carp and blue water lilies in it and big green frogs. 
a high brick wall alongside the kitchen garden was all covered with pink and yellow peaches ripening in the sun there was a wonderful great oak hollow in the trunk big enough for four men to hide inside many summer houses there were too some of wood some of stone and one of them was full of books to read in a corner among some rocks and ferns was an outdoor fireplace where the doctor used to fry liver and bacon when he had a notion to take his meals in the open air there was a couch as well on which he used to sleep it seems on warm summer nights when the nightingales were singing at their best it had wheels on it so that it could be moved about under any tree they sang in but the thing that fascinated me most of all was a tiny little tree-house high up in the top branches of a great elm with a long rope ladder leading to it the doctor told me he used it for looking at the moon and the stars through a telescope it was the kind of a garden where you could wander and explore for days and days always coming upon something new always glad to find the old spots over again the first time i saw the doctor's garden i was so charmed by it that i felt i would like to live in it always and always and never go outside of it again for it had everything within its walls to give happiness to make living pleasant to keep the heart at peace it was the garden of dreams one peculiar thing i noticed immediately i came into it and that was what a lot of birds there were about every tree seemed to have two or three nests in it and heaps of other wild creatures appeared to be making themselves at home there too stoats and tortoises and dormice seemed to be quite common and not in the least shy toads of different colors and sizes hopped about the lawn as though it belonged to them green lizards which were very rare in puddleby sat up on the stones in the sunlight and blinked at us even snakes were to be seen you need not be afraid of them said the doctor noticing that i started somewhat when a large black snake wiggled across the path right in front of us these fellows are not poisonous they do a great deal of good in keeping down many kinds of garden pests i play the flute to them sometimes in the evening they love it stand right up on their tails and carry on no end funny thing their taste for music why do all these animals come and live here i asked i never saw a garden with so many creatures in it well i suppose it's because they get the kind of food they like and nobody worries or disturbs them and then of course they know me and if they or their children get sick, I presume they find it handy to be living in a doctor's garden. Look, you see that sparrow on the sundial swearing at the blackbird down below? Well, he has been coming here every summer for years. He comes from London. The country sparrows round about here are always laughing at him. They say he chirps with such a cockney accent. He is a most amusing bird, very brave, but very cheeky. He loves nothing better than an argument, but he always ends it by getting rude. He is a real city bird. In London, he lives around St. Paul's Cathedral. Cheapside, we call him. Are all these birds from the country round here? I asked. Most of them, said the doctor. But a few rare ones visit me every year who ordinarily never come near England at all. For instance, that handsome little fellow hovering over the snapdragon there. He's a ruby-throated hummingbird, comes from America. Strictly speaking, he has no business in this climate at all. It is too cool. I make him sleep in the kitchen at night. Then every August, about the last week of the month, I have a purple bird of paradise come all the way from Brazil to see me. She's a very great swell. Hasn't arrived yet, of course. 
And there are a few others, foreign birds, from the tropics mostly, who drop in on me in the course of the summer months. But come, I must show you the zoo. Chapter 10. The Private Zoo I did not think there could be anything left in that garden which we had not seen. But the doctor took me by the arm and started off down a little narrow path, and after many windings and twistings and turnings, we found ourselves before a small door and a high stone wall. The doctor pushed it open. Inside was still another garden. I had expected to find cages with animals inside, but there were none to be seen. Instead, there were little stone houses here and there all over the garden, and each house had a window and a door. As we walked in, many of these doors opened, and animals came running out to us evidently expecting food. Haven't the doors any locks on them? I asked the doctor. Oh, yes, he said. Every door has a lock, but in my zoo the doors open from the inside, not from the out. The locks are only there so the animals can go and shut themselves in any time they want to get away from the annoyance of other animals or from people who might come here. Every animal in this zoo stays here because he likes it, not because he is made to. They all look very happy and clean, I said. Would you mind telling me the names of some of them? Certainly. Well now, that funny-looking thing with plates on his back, nosing under the brick over there, is a South American armadillo. The little chap talking to him is a Canadian woodchuck. They both live in those holes you see at the foot of the wall. The two little beasts doing antics in the pond are a pair of Russian minks. And that reminds me, I must go and get them some herrings from the town before noon. It is early closing today. That animal, just stepping out of his house, is an antelope, one of the smaller South African kinds. Now, let us move to the other side of those bushes there, and I will show you some more. Are those deer over there? I asked. Deer? said the doctor. Where do you mean? Over there. I said, pointing. Nibbling the grass border of the bed. There are two of them. Oh, that, said the doctor with a smile. That isn't two animals. That's one animal with two heads. The only two-headed animal in the world. It's called the Push-Me-Pull-You. I brought him from Africa. He's very tame, acts as a kind of night watchman for my zoo. He only sleeps with one head at a time, you see. Very handy. The other head stays awake all night. Have you any lions or tigers? I asked as we moved on. No, said the doctor. It wouldn't be possible to keep them here. And I wouldn't keep them even if I could. If I had my way, Stubbins, there wouldn't be a single lion or tiger in captivity anywhere in the world. They never take to it. They're never happy. They never settle down. They are always thinking of the big countries they have left behind. You can see it in their eyes, dreaming. Dreaming always of the great open spaces where they were born. Dreaming of the deep, dark jungles where their mothers first taught them how to scent and track the deer. And what are they given in exchange for all of this? Asked the doctor, stopping in his walk and growing all red and angry. 
What are they given in exchange for the glory of an African sunrise, for the twilight breeze whispering through the palms, for the green shade of the matted tangled vines, for the cool big starred nights of the desert, for the patter of the waterfall after a hard day's hunt? What, I ask you, are they given in exchange for these? Why, a bare cage with iron bars, an ugly piece of dead meat thrust into them once a day, and a crowd of fools to come and stare at them with open mouths. No, stubborns, lions and tigers, the big hunters, should never, never be seen in zoos. The doctor seemed to have grown terribly serious, almost sad. But suddenly his manner changed again, and he took me by the arm with his same old cheerful smile. But we haven't seen the butterfly houses yet, nor the aquariums. Come along, I am very proud of my butterfly houses. Off we went again, and came presently into a hedged enclosure. Here I saw several big huts made of fine wire netting, like cages. Inside the netting all sorts of beautiful flowers were growing in the sun, with butterflies skimming over them. The doctor pointed to the end of one of the huts, where little boxes with holes in them stood in a row. Those are the hatching boxes, said he. There I put the different kinds of caterpillars. And as soon as they turn into butterflies and moths, they come out into these flower gardens to feed. Do butterflies have a language? I asked. Oh, I fancy they have, said the doctor. And the beetles, too. But so far, I haven't succeeded in learning much about insect languages. I have been too busy lately trying to master the shellfish talk. I mean to take it up, though. At that moment, Polynesian joined us and said, Doctor, there are two guinea pigs at the back door. They say they have run away from the boy who kept them because they didn't get the right stuff to eat. They want to know if you will take them in. All right, said the doctor. Show them the way to the zoo. Give them the house on the left, near the gate, the one the black fox had. Tell them what the rules are and give them a square meal. Now, Stubbins, we will go on to the aquariums. And first of all, I must show you my big glass seawater tank where I keep the shellfish. End of part one, chapter ten.